Hey, Jason, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. How about you? I'm not too bad. I'm not particularly in love with the weather that we're having right now, only just because it, it feels like growing up in Northern England. Yeah, I was about to say, does it remind you of home? Oh God, it really does, but not in a good way. I know some people get nostalgic for that, but I, I don't think I'll ever get nostalgic for gray, gloomy weather. You don't like wet and dreary? Come on. I don't, you know what I like it? I like it if it's just like an odd day. So like in the middle of summer, you know how like you get those days where it's like really yeah. thundery and stormy. I like it when it's like that, but we've had about a week of it or so. I don't need that. And then well, you, you had that, a week like, of it. I didn't have well, a week yeah, of it. Well, yeah, you didn't. Where were you? I was in New Orleans where it was sunny and 75 all week. That's incredible. 75? Yeah, I got up to 80 for a couple of days, but never really too much more than that. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, that sounds fucking righteous. <laughs> it was funny because we were texting each other and uh, you you tell you told me that you were eating what's it, beignets? Which I mm-hmm. know those like those are like the little donut holes kind of things, aren't they? Uh not necessarily. They're they're kind of squarish shape, but yeah, it's it's fried dough, basically. Oh, with powdered sugar so on top. Bad. Did you eat uh crawfish gumbo? I had crawfish etouffee which is very similar, but yeah. I also had gumbo as well. It was just more of a uh, traditional Creole uh, gumbo with chicken and sausage. Damn, you're making me really hungry. And the only thing I've got, in, <laughs> the only thing I've got in my, uh, nothing in my refrigerator, the only thing I have is in my freezer and I have like a really crappy Whole Foods pizza. So, <laughs> oh boy. Okay, well, anyway, moving on. I was going to bring this up. So the last episode that we did together, we did on, why can't I remember it already? We did it on (laughs) um, Ex Machina, correct? Yes. Okay. So we mentioned this movie whilst we were talking about movies with artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. or like as a theme, you know, our favorite. But I I have to throw back though, thinking about it, because there is no artificial intelligence. It's it's cyborgs, not AI, correct? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's that's a... That's a valid point. Uh, it's not really something you necessarily think of because she is, you know, the majority of her is mechanical and battle angel. But yeah, I guess she does have a, a human brain, but that's not, it wasn't really something that really stuck with me from watching it when it first came out. So I guess that's why I threw it in there. But either way, still an amazing movie. Yeah, Battle Angel Alita. That's the movie we're going to talk about. Well, we are going to be talking about it. And I think it came out in 2019. It came out, mm-hmm. yes, it did, 2019. So actually not that long ago in the scheme of things, but it feels like forever ago because it was post-COVID, uh, pre-COVID. It obviously feels like it came out in a different age. Yeah, COVID just seemed like it was four years, even though it was two. I know, right? It's crazy. And I saw this in the theater. Did you see this in the theater? I sure did. I wasn't coming at it from a point of like, experience with the original source material or anything like that. I just thought it looked really cool. I really liked the design of the character from the trailer, Mm -hmm. the titular Alita. It was super fun. The main takeaway, obviously we'll talk about as we get into it because I rewatched it for the episode, but the main takeaway from my initial viewing of it was I was, I thought it was very, very fun. 
And I was hoping after seeing it, I was like, well, I hope this makes enough money to make a sequel. And we'll get into that as we go on too, because I don't think there is going to be for this movie. Nah, don't say that. I know. I know. I mean, I hope don't there is. Don't say that. I hope there is. I guess the real, the genesis for this episode was just because we, we both mentioned it. Like you, you actually brought it up on the, the Ex Machina episode. And then at the time I was like, oh yeah, we should totally do an episode on that. Cause we both really enjoy it. Yeah. For me, it was kind of the, the same story, uh, as far as I just, I didn't know it was a thing until I saw it in, uh, in the theaters, I was going to watch something else. It was in 2018. I can't remember for the life of me what movie it was, but I just remember seeing the trailer for it and I was, I was just like, what is that looks awesome. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I put that on my, my two watch list. And then of course saw it in theaters and then immediately went home and bought it. So, Oh, you did? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I must admit, I, I think I toyed with the idea of buying it when I came out too, because I thought, I think if I could sum up this movie, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I do want to sum it up. If I could sum up this movie, I think this movie is fun as fuck. Yeah. It's just a rollicking good time from start to finish, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's overlooked. I think a lot of people slept on this movie and I, I think it should have done better numbers because I've seen movies that cost even more than this. Like the forget, like the main purpose of, the, of, of a tale like this or a story like this should be to entertain you. In this movie, it seems hell bent on purely entertaining you from start to finish without getting, it doesn't go too deep into anything. It doesn't get, it doesn't get too awkward or weird. It no, it just feels like it, it's cooking on gas the whole time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jason, I knew a long time ago from following movies and being a nerd that I am, I knew that James Cameron would be touting making this movie for a long time. I knew it was a manga or an anime. I hope I don't offend any nerds who are listening to this. I knew it was based on that source material and I knew he'd been touting that he was going to make it for a long time and it never ever, it never surfaced, I guess, his version of it. I just want to read something and this is from, this is from CNET online and this is from an article written by Jennifer Bisset. And it was published on February 12th, 2019. So obviously ar around the time that the movie came out. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read a little section of it so we can kind of put this in context. Because I think talking about this movie, I don't think this movie gets made without James Cameron on any level. So it, even though he technically didn't sign on to direct it, he was very involved in the production process of this movie. And his, his will be forever synonymous with this property. Here we go. In 2005, Cameron had the choice, take on Avatar, what was then known as Project 880, or the adaptation of Battle Angel Alita. The doe-eyed Alita ultimately came second to the blue people with tails, and Cameron <laughs> handled the, handed the project over to his friend, Robert Rodriguez. Everybody knows who he is. If you don't know who he is, you maybe shouldn't be listening to this podcast, but wonderful, wonderful director, El Mariachi, Desperado on and on and on. One of my favorite directors. I love Robert Rodriguez. He's awesome. I'm actually going to cut it off there. It's my understanding that when James Cameron, after Titanic, he'd been working on motion capture technology, which he was developing for a documentary that he was making. Obviously, we all know Cameron is super obsessed with technology and pushing technology forward. He's very dorky in that respect. It was either going to be Avatar that he made or it was going to be Battle Angel Alita. And fun fact for you, Jason, I didn't know if you knew this. So years ago, James Cameron and Guillermo del Toro 
have been friends for a long time. And at one point, Del Toro actually stayed with James Cameron in his mansion and they lived together for, I guess it was like for a few months. And Guillermo Del Toro and James Cameron would watch manga together. They were super huh. into it. So they'd watch a bunch of different mangas together. And Del Toro actually showed him Battle Angel. And when they were watching, he was like, wouldn't this make a great movie? And then ever since then, Cameron had it stuck in his head. He was like, yeah, that would make a super cool movie. So his idea basically at this point after Titanic was he, was, he wanted to make a movie with an entirely CGI lead character, entirely CGI. So he'd been working on this motion capture technology, coming up with different ideas on how to do it. And then he ultimately decided to go for Avatar over this. And I think, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I'm guessing it's because his technology was really good, as we can see, because the first Avatar, even if you watch it now, stands up incredibly. The CGI and the motion capture in that first Avatar is incredible, even, to, even by today's standards. Definitely. I guess maybe what he was thinking was, well, I've got this technology super down. Why don't I just make the whole thing fully CGI rather than do it a little bit of this, a little bit of that with Battle Angel? I'm guessing that's perhaps what he did. But anyway, that basically, once he'd signed on to do Avatar and Avatar was such a big success, there was no going back for Cameron, really, I guess. there was. It's not as if he would have been like, oh, well, I'll just fit in Battle Angel after the first Avatar because we know now it's, how long has it been between Avatar movies? It's like 12 years? Yeah, well, 2009. So, yeah, 13. If it's taken him that long to make Avatar 2, there's no way in hell he would have had time to do this. Thankfully, I don't know if this is a studio decision, but obviously Cameron was involved, so I guess it was partly his decision too. Rodriguez took it on and made, knocked it out of the park. Now, how different is this to what his version of it would have been? I don't know. I don't know if anybody's actually discussed that. Perhaps on the internet, somebody's like, there might be interviews where it talks about the differences. But because he was so hands on and being involved in the production, I'm guessing a lot of his vision was put forward with Rodriguez's flair. I would expect so. That pretty much sums up Cameron's involvement. Now, we have to talk about the source material. So the source material came out in 1993, and it's called an OVA, which I'm not entirely sure what that means. But it's a, it's a term that they use for a lot of animated manga movies at that period of time. So I guess OVAs would include like Akira and a lot of those early, like early wave of movies that came, like, came popular mm -hmm. in America, but obviously were already super popular in the homeland of Japan. Right. Here's a little bit from my old friend Wikipedia on the original. So the original was actually called Gunman. I can't pronounce it. It's G-U-N-N-M, which roughly translates to Gun Dream, then also known in the English version as Battle Angel Elite. It's a Japanese cyberpunk manga series, obviously, like I said before, created by Yukito Kashiro and originally published in, I can't even pronounce it, so I'm not going to pronounce it, in, in a magazine from 1990 to 1995 comic book series. Basically, yes. The second of the comics, nine volumes, was adapted in 1993 into a two-part anime, original video animation, titled Battle Angel for North American release by ADV Films. This is interesting, so we're learning as we go. So apologies mm -hmm. to our listeners if they're listening, like, what the hell are you talking about? I didn't know this. So firstly, I didn't know it was a comic book. Yeah. Well, primarily. That's, that's, that's what uh, a manga or manga is. It's, it's a book. Okay, so anime is the... Is visual, yes. That's... The, oh, there we go. Learning as we go. Thanks, Jason. Bloody hell. Yeah, no worries. 
This is like talking to your old uncle at Christmas about what kind of stuff you're into. And he's like, oh, what's that? Tell me about that manga that you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, I am interested. Do you know much about the storyline in the actual manga, the comic? Uh, I'm working on that. I've actually picked up the first one and I've started to read it. Oh, interesting. It, it, yeah, it's it's available on uh, Apple Books. So you can, I've, I've got it to where I can just read it on my iPad. Because I am curious. We've both watched the, the animated movie. Mm-hmm. And what I think's weird is, according to this, it's the second of the nine volumes was adapted. So there's, a, there's a, a precursor to what we see in the animated version. I'm not too sure how much of it is because it starts off right with the first few pages of the first uh, manga volume uh where it shows uh dr ito going into the junkyard and finding alita's uh head and torso that's in the first one it starts off there and then it jumps to something else i'm guessing i just i don't know i haven't gotten that far i'm only you know a few pages into the manga i'll be interested and i and the reason why i'm interested is just like we said well what i was talking about when i saw the movie in the theater the live action movie is I was really excited for a sequel because I think the material, the source material, the story I think is pretty fun. And I like how they build up the law regarding the world that exists here in Iron City. And I think like you could do a lot with it. So I'm very curious to see where they got to in the story in the manga and then what they could adapt if they do make a sequel to this, I think that's fascinating. And I'm super interested in that because no spoilers for the movie ahead. We'll get into spoilers later, but it ends on, on a really, really cliffhanger. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a cliffhanger essentially because it feels ripe. It feels like you've just seen the first part of something. Let's talk about the anime then, Jason. What's your takes on the anime after watching it? I really, I really enjoyed it. It, it definitely has like that old uh, late eighties and early nineties aesthetic to it. As far as the, uh, um, the art style, um, like the, the anime characters with the really big eyes that kind of go out past their faces <laughs> at times. Um, and then the audio really uh, kind of put me back in that era as well. Cause I don't know if you've noticed this, but whenever they do dubs like that, it they have to like line up the you know the speech to the moving of the mouth and what's going on, and so a lot of the times it just seems very quick the the discourse between the character. Like somebody will say something, and before they're even done finishing the sentence, the next person's already responding, <laughs> kind of a thing. And so I don't know, kind of nostalgic for that that era of of anime. I I, I enjoyed that. Uh, the story itself, um, very good, very similar to what the movie does. And in fact, seen some of the scenes are pretty much just ripped right out of the anime and dropped into the life live action movie. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I actually enjoyed it too. And it's funny you said that about, so I watched the dub version. I don't know if there's a version out there in original Japanese or what have you, but yeah, so I watched the dub and it was funny cause it really took me back. It took me back to watching like Back in the early 90s, when all of this started popping off in video stores, I would pick up, I tried my hand at anime movies mm-hmm. over time. I had, I'm not particularly a big animated movie fa- like fan in general. I don't watch a lot of animated product like uh, movies at all. But I tried my hand and I would watch Dominion Tank Police, I remember. There's a few ones around that period. 
obviously everybody saw Akira. It really took me back to watching those VHS tapes with the dubs because it is, it's very charming, but I can also understand people watching it and be like, this is like, what, what's going on is so goofy. But that's part of the charm for me, I think is the, the, the voice acting is so funny in, in them and like not intentionally. And I think that's what makes it very, very charming. Other than that, the, I mean, the main thing that stood out for me is just like you said, Jason, there are one or two scenes, even, I mean, specifically from the opening and then throughout that are lifted directly in the live action version, which I love. I think they did. I think it's so cool how they were so confident to just be like, this looks really dope. This looks really cool. We're going to lift it almost shot for shot and put it in our movie because it works. It just totally works. Visually, I think the anime is very interesting. And I like that more crude art style from the period of time, which I really, really like. Um, I really like the design of Alita with the, the huge eyes. And which is funny is because the, that was a huge bone of contention when the trailer dropped for this movie. I remember at the time, every, everybody commenting on the way she looked and how Rodriguez chose to animate her face with those very, very massive oval-shaped eyes which I think is perfect. And I think that's like the best way to do it is like to blend that style. And I think in terms of it being faithful to the source material, I think it's like incredibly faithful in the way it mm -hmm. looks visually and aesthetically. So I loved that. I loved that. I, I loved noticing things that I'd seen in the movie and how they, they paid homage to certain things in the anime, which I thought was really good. Um, I think the, and we'll get into the variances now. I'll have to forgive the variances because I don't know if some of the variances in the plot are pulled from later editions of the manga, and that's how they they fleshed out the story in the live action version, or if they added stuff in the live action version to flesh out the plot that's just not even in the manga. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's. Uh, I was just actually thinking about that as you right before you got into that. Um, like the whole motorball thing, like that's yes. that's not in the uh, the anime, and it, it might be in the manga. I, I just don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet, but that'd be cool if it was like you know, in, lifted from like volume six or something like that, where they that comes up. But yeah, for sure, I think that would be really cool, and that's what I'm thinking because in the an like in the anime, so in the live action version, we'll get into the plot of the live action version at some point. But this isn't really a spoiler. But there's a sport that's featured a lot, and it's very it's basically rollerball. You, we've all seen rollerball, the movie with James Caan. We've seen the remake, and it's been countless video games have done it. It's it's just, it's a very standard like science fiction futuristic sport. <laughs> yeah, like a gladiatorial combat sport. I love the choice to do that in the live action because in the anime, it, the only thing we see is like straight up gladiator combat, like one-on-one, -on -one, like real steel, like two big robots fighting each other, you know, or like um, cyborgs fighting each other. I love the way they've adapted it into the sport and then made it into that sport because I, 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 I'm a sucker for it. I love it. And they do such a good job of portraying it in the movie too like in making it exciting and dynamic and interesting. We'll get into that too. But other than, so I don't really, I can't really find much fault with the, the anime. I wish there was more of it so I could keep watching it because I actually found myself like really getting into it. Um, so that's disappointing that, and I don't know why it was only, I wonder, did they run out of money or was it just canceled? So the, the, the creator of the manga honestly had no intention of ever making it into an anime. 
Oh, okay. And then whenever it was put into the anime, he, he like put no effort into it basically. And just didn't really care about it. Like his baby was the manga and that's all he really wanted. And so whenever they did these like two pilots, I guess you can say, he was like, yeah, that's cool. I'm not going to do anything with it though. So that's why it just kind of drops there. That's, that's a shame. I wonder when, let's have a look. I wonder when Akira came out or even Ghost in the Shell for them. Well, Akira, so Akira came out in 1988. Yeah, 88. Now, I will say if his lack of effort in support of the anime, now this isn't to knock anybody involved in it and I have no idea how difficult it is to animate. I think the animation was perfectly decent in 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 the original. I think it's it's good. Now, but as a point of comparison, obviously it fails next to something like Akira, which is seminal, and Akira came up five years earlier. Well, yeah, well, trying to compare anything to Akira is a little bit... It's I know, it's kind of crazy. It's an unfair comparison. It, it really, because, yeah, Akira, it, it completely changed the entire world of animation. Like, they, they didn't have that level of detail and intricacies that went into animes before that. Because before Akira, it was... Uh, like imagine like like Scooby Doo or Speed Racer, something like that, where it's it's just very, very low detail. You know, you've got the the background in the back that kind of is just like the same. Excuse me, the same three frames that just kind of keep scrolling by <laughs> in, in repetition. Yeah, so it, you, it's it's hard to yeah. <laughs> Akira set the standard. Yeah, it's unfair, but. Some people, though, who aren't as familiar with the genre might go into it with that unfair expectation because most people have seen Akira. It, whilst it is obviously a lot more crude, I, don't, I think it's effective. I don't think it's, um, I think it's fluid. No, it, it still had a high level of, diff, of, uh, of detail in, oh, in yeah, the anime. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it was, I mean, I, 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 had, I found no faults with it honest uh like you I, I wish there was more of it but i mean i guess that's why i'm gonna read the manga because i just want to know where the story goes yeah i would i would definitely like to see more of it. i'd actually be if even if they weren't going to continue with the live action movie series i'd be very on board if somebody like netflix picked it up and they made and they brought on like you know like modern talent and they were to redo it the whole nine book run of the manga into a tv series i think that would be great i mean i'm super on board for that yeah, it would be too. Yeah, we could definitely do a really good job. Okay, well, what we're going to do is try to condense the plot of the live action movie because that's what we're going to be talking about in a way that I don't want to go too in depth. Set in 2563, that's 300 years after the Earth was devastated by a catastrophic war known as the Fall, scientist Dr. Dyson Edo discovers a disembodied female cyborg with an intact human brain while scavenging for parts in the massive scrapyard of Iron City. Ido attaches a new cyborg body to the brain and names her Alita, after his deceased daughter. Alita awakens with no memory of her past and quickly befriends Hugo, a young man who dreams of moving to the wealthy sky city of Salem. She also meets Dr. Shirin, who is Ido's estranged ex-wife. Hugo later, later introduces Alita to Motorball, a rollerball-like racing sport played by cyborg gladiators. Secretly, Hugo robs cyborgs of their parts for Vector, owner of the Motorball tournament and de facto ruler of the factory 
Iron City's governing authority. Okay, without going, I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to spoil anything. The setup is pretty straightforward. It's a little bit Pinocchio, but anyway, Pinocchio pops to mind a lot when I watch this. Essentially, Edo finds the disembodied part of a uh, head of Alita. He reattaches her to a body. Now, the body that he reattaches to was a body that he designed for his deceased daughter. So it was something, I guess it was like, as a way to help his daughter live on through whatever illness she had. He uses that body for Alita. Alita becomes to life and they, they strike up a friendship. And she strikes up a friendship with a guy called Hugo, who is a neighborhood kid who's hanging around the neighborhood. What's really fascinating about this, Jason, and it is for me. So Iron City, set 2563, is such an interesting place because above, directly above Iron City, you have this floating megalopolis or whatever you would say it is. And it's a city called Zalem. So instantly set up with this class system where we have everybody on the ground who's basically living in poverty. And what they're doing is they're working in factories to provide goods to send up to Zalem. Zalem is like a walled fortress. And it basically has a garbage disposal chute at the bottom of it that just drops their garbage back down into Iron City when, when they've used it, which is really, it's a really cool visual element to the movie, but also a really cool setup because it's, we start in Iron City and we know that ultimately we're going to end up at Zalem, but we don't see anything of Zalem. We just hear that it's this location that is a almost like a wealthy paradise, you know, where it's like a different, it's like a class system. So the the elite live above the earth. The ground on the uh, the people on the bottom are basically feeding and supplying goods and wares up up to the top. And when the, the people on the top are done with it, it's literally a garbage chute that just drops it back down to the ground, which I think is fascinating. I also thought it was kind of funny because the, the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, look, this, the floating city has an anus. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what it's doing. It's, they're just, it's all of their shit. They're just shitting back down on the ground <laughs> on the lower classes, which is uh, very fitting. And it's right in the middle. <laughs> it's, it's right in the middle of Iron City. <laughs> yeah, it's as if Iron City, yeah, it's right in the heart of Iron City with no regard for who lives below. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it's such a great visual element and also such a great setup for this story that roughly sets up the premise of the movie. So Jason, with all of that being said, and with me talking a lot, as I usually do, let me hear your spoiler-free breakdown and what you really like about, and if there's anything about this movie that you don't like, yeah, just give me the usual Jason's review. Gotcha. Um, well, I just really liked following, following Alita's character because she wakes up and she knows nothing. She doesn't even know her own name. In fact, uh, Dr. Ito gives her the name Alita, which in the live action was uh, the name of his deceased daughter. He just kind of passed that on to her as well as the body. Kind of weird, but you know, hey, whatever. In the manga, it's actually his cat. <laughs> he named Alita was the name of uh, his his deceased cat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But no, just following her uh, journey of discovery was just, you know, seeing her, her joy in simple things like chocolate. You know, just her her eyes light up and really big eyes to light up. So it really 
<laughs> comes across on the screen, but you know, just things like that really just make me kind of smile and giggle. So I really liked watching her journey and then just the, the whole quest of trying to find herself uh, and then being surprised at what she finds about herself. You know, she's, she's not the, the, you know, little, little princess, the, the peachy little princess. She's, she's a little bit darker than that, but yeah, just her whole life discovery. Yeah. It's very touching. I think it's sentimental without being sappy or, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, it's not overly sentimental. It's, it's like, it, it hits that right balance between his relationship with her and her, her burgeoning discovery of what it, what it, what it's like to be human. Even though, as we will come to find out, this isn't a spoiler. She's not technically human. Seeing her discover the world in, and take such joy in Iron City, which is a place where everybody else is so miserable in and trying to get out of. But she's also <laughs> kind of like, well, this is great. You know what I mean? I can eat chocolate. I can do. I I like that. I like how she's she's not caught up in that. Like, oh, I've got I've got to have. I deserve something better. I've got to have something better. She's just like, okay, I'm I'm taking the the small pleasures. I'm, I'm, I met this cute guy, Hugo, I'm eating chocolate. Like I'm having fun. I'm running around the city. Oh, what's this? We're going to go roller skating now. It's like, it's very infectious. And I think what that boils down to is I think the performance, uh, the main performance. Now the actress who plays, let's have like, who plays Alita? I'm going to bring up the actress. He was in, uh, was it Divergent? One of those. Oh, really? One of those. Yeah. Her name is Rosa Salazar. And it's funny when you look at a picture, you, she looks, yeah, they, wow. She totally looks like they did. That's such a good job. Um, <laughs> she's been in, let's have a look, movies and TV shows. She's in the Maze Runner, Death Cure, which I, that's like the third one, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, the fourth, the fourth one, I think. Ah, that's um, okay. So it wasn't Divergent. No, but it's close. I mean, it's another YA. Exactly the same movie. <laughs> The Hunger Games, Maze Runner, Divergent, you know, it's the same story, just rewritten different ways. Yeah, no, totally. It is, though, really. She's been in a bunch of other stuff. She's in a few Netflix originals, uh, Brand New Cherry Flavor, which I still want to see, which I haven't seen. She's also in Bird Box, the Sandra Bullock starring Netflix original, which I I remember enjoying. Might be worth a revisit. So she's not like super, she doesn't look super familiar to me at all, if I'm being honest. But when you see the picture of her and then you see the picture of her next to the final version of the animated version, her performance is stellar. I think she, I think she's really, really great and like perfect casting. So a lot of like what you were saying, Jason, I think it, you know, it, it's springing from the fact that she's performing this character with a lot of heart, a lot of soul in the movies, treating her with utmost, utmost respect as a character and we can have fun following along with her adventures, so to speak. And I think for me, if I was to like really say what hits home for this movie in terms of what I really, really like about it, it, it goes back to fun. It goes back to that experience where I'm, I'm just having a good time when I'm watching it. And it also, I, I think the visual design for now, a lot of the visual design for the, the bounty hunters and the, the cyborgs that we encounter are very similar to those from the anime which I think is really cool. And I think the kinetic energy in which all the action scenes take place, it, it, all of the action is so fun to watch in this movie. The 
battle ball or whatever they call it, the roller ball, rip off that motor ball is what they call it. Those sequences are so fun to watch because visually there's so much stuff going on and, and everything feels like really, really cool. That's my biggest takeaway is the fact that from start to finish, I'm having a whale of a time watching it. Considering it's a PG-13 movie, the action feels like really, really great. Like I can follow what's going on. There's a, a couple of really, really good fight scenes between Alita and then this other cyborg who I, be, I believe is called Grishka, played by Jackie Earl Haley, the great Jackie Earl Haley. Um, but he's essentially like this cyborg who looks like if you were to blow up all disproportionate, but some of the, the fight scenes between those two is, is just, he kind of reminds me of, uh, what was it? The fantastic four, uh, yes, dude. Isn't he called it or thing or I don't know the thing there that's what go. he's called. Yeah. That kind of like massive oversized bulbous upper half, like upper torso. And then these tiny little legs. <laughs> <laughs> Really, really good. And I think the performances, the casting is perfect. Now, the casting of Christoph, Christoph Waltz as Dr. Dyson Ido or Ido is perfect casting, especially if you've seen the anime. What great casting. The casting of his wife, uh, Jennifer Connelly, I'll watch her and everything. His ex-wife, Dr. Sheeran, really, really good casting. I think she has an elegance and a poise to her, and I think her performance is really good. Then the the cyborg casting, obviously Jackie Earl Haley and Ed Screen, who's like a British actor who I've seen in a few things. He plays a like a cyborg samurai almost with a sword called Zapan, who's like a, a bounty hunter too. He's really cool. And then the the big bad, at least in the big bad for this movie, it's set up that there's a, a there's an even bigger, more nefarious bad guy later on, which we'll get into when we get into the spoiler sections. But Vector, played by Marshala Ali, he's perfectly cast. Yes, as Vector. If you go from watching the anime to watching this, like Hugo's casting, everybody's casting looks and feels like just like they do in the anime, with the exception of Ido's ex-wife. Well, only because she has blonde hair and she's a yeah. brunette in this movie. <laughs> but I mean, that's it. If they were to give her blonde hair, it would in like a shorter haircut and blonde hair, it would be identical. There's a difference though in tone between the anime and the movie, because obviously we said this is a PG-13. In the anime, it has a lot of that very tropey, which I'm not a big fan of, admittedly. And I think that's a lot of reasons why I bounce off anime, specifically from that period of time. There's, there's nudity in the anime where there is not in the live action version, which I... I I feel like makes more sense anyway. It, it was it was hinted at. Yeah, but I mean, there's outright sex scenes in the anime. Tonally, though, it doesn't make any sense in the anime. Tonally, it, it's it's unnecessary. But that's just part of what that kind of anime was like at that period of time. There's always like tits and ass in in those. But you don't need the sexual element of it that much. You don't you don't need to show nudity for to, for us yeah. to get the point. You know, we do see. It, it, it becomes uh, knowledge to us that Dr. Shirin, who's Ido's ex-wife, is having a sexual relationship with Vector. And it's hinted at in the live action version, but in a subtle way, which is the way it should have been really, I think, because otherwise we go from following... It, yeah, it would have been out of, completely out of place. Yeah, because we go from following what's essentially like a teenage girl and a teenage boyfriend as our main characters, and then we'll just jump to a sex scene. And it's just like, mm, that's kind of weird. I, I, I agree. I mean, in the, in the anime's defense, they kind of did the same thing where it was like, it skips to right 
after the sex scene kind of a thing. So yeah, she is nude in one scene, but it, it's not actually like, you know, it's, it's not like a hentai or anything. So don't be afraid of it. You can go watch it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm yeah, I'm definitely not selling it. Like we're talking like pornography here, but it's, um, Tonally, it's a little weird. I mean, I definitely wouldn't watch this with a kid. No. But the live action version is more than suitable for children, in my opinion. Now, I'm not a parent, so I would I would say that. <laughs> I don't give a shit, but yeah, I think it, I think it's nothing PG, too bad in it. PG-13. I'm, I think it was well rated at, at PG-13. I, I think so, too. There are some things that are, I wouldn't want a younger child to watch. I mean, there, there is still somebody that gets cut in half in the live action. <laughs> well, there's actually and, a couple, and, there's a couple of it, people get cut in half. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one in particular where it happens yeah. and the body is just on the ground <laughs> and they don't like try to hide it or anything. So it's, it's not exactly kid friendly, but PG 13, that's fine. It, it, it feels more jarring because it's an actual real living, breathing, regular standard human being. So when it happens, it's a little bit like, whoa, because you do disconnect when you're looking at the CG. Obviously you do CGI, but like you disconnect when you see these CGI mon- um, robots battling each other. And they you kind of like, yeah, half. yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels a little bit less. Well, less it's, especially because as long as their head survives, they survive <laughs> pretty much. It, yeah, essentially. Yeah. It'll come up when we talk spoilers and the plot, but that's like a pretty cool development when we realize just how, what they can do in terms of like saving people's lives. It's pretty interesting. I want to ask you this. So Jason, where are you on the CGI considering this movie is from 2019 and we know that CGI doesn't have the longest shelf life and this movie is primarily CGI. So how are you with the CGI in this movie? I mean, I was totally fine with it. Uh, the majority of where I think CGI fails is whenever they try to do uh, more organic things. And the majority of the CGI in this movie, with the exception of the main character, was all, you know, robotic parts. So it's, it's more hardline geometry that they're rendering rather than, you know, trying to get flesh tones and stuff like that. So with the exception of the main character's, you know, face, that's all pretty safe. But... In regards to Alita's face, I thought it was really, really good. Um, I mean, uh, there there are times where you kind of forget that it's CGI until you realize that you're looking at a girl with massive eyeballs. You do. I mean, that's very valid because she is entirely CGI. It's not like having just like, say, for example, a human face transposed on top of a, a cyborg's body. She's entirely CGI from top to bottom. And I, I'm with you on that, Jason. I think it holds up particularly well. And I think that's to do with how expressive her eyes are and the uh-huh. choice to make those eyes really, really big and expressive. And other than the eyes, yeah, there's a lot of times where she's moving and she's talking and her facial expressions, it's pretty good. I think it's going to be one that'll hold up over the time. I think so too. And, I, and I'm sure that's because of Cameron's involvement. I'm sure Cameron helped with the tech. He definitely had practice with Avatar because. Because that's pretty believable as well. And that was 2009, 10 years before this. Yeah. And now obviously this money, this movie didn't have the budget. I'm not sure what the budget was for this movie, but it it wouldn't have had the budget that Avatar did. No. But regardless, it, I mean, you could still tell this movie cost a lot of money regardless. I mean, it did. 
but it's it holds up. I think it holds up great, and I think it's going to hold up for a while. And I think it's just like what you said, Jason, like the geometry and the fact that it, we're dealing with like metal shapes, metal bodies. It's solid, rock solid, rock solid, or so uh, metal gear solid. Oh, okay. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Jason and I both like it. That's why we're doing the episode. If you had to say anything negative without spoiling anything, unless your any negatives that you do have would be considered a spoiler, is there anything that you didn't, or anything that didn't entirely fire for you? Yes and no. It all has to do with the uh, story and the plot. Mm-hmm. That's it's my double edged sword. Um, one, the ending, which we'll get to. That's probably like the biggest thing for me is where it's left but that's just because i want more <laughs> uh and then there are certain things where uh it, it seems like her progression as a character at times it seems rather i don't want to say sped up but things happen very quickly at times and in the in the, the scope of the entire movie it works but then when i kind of sat back and just kind of like really started to analyze it i was like eh, some of those might have been a little bit of a of a leap but oh, i don't know if you're thinking about what i'm thinking about in terms of that but i agree with you on that i think that whilst the pacing is great because the movie moves at a clip and you don't really get bored some of the events that unfold and some of the characters motivations seem a little rash and a little rushed a little un yeah and, and a little it which pushes it into the unbelievable territory some sometimes at points yeah it's a fantasy movie so obviously everything's heightened in characters uh behavior and emotions and actions are very heightened because of that but if i had a problem with the movie and it's not in the casting because i think he does a good a good a good portrayal i'm not particularly fond of the hugo character at all I find him a little bit of a stick in the mud and I find him also a little grating specifically with how much Alita is obsessed with him, which is fine, (laughs) but also to the point where, where he's given multiple chances, treading lightly for spoilers here, he's given multiple outs of his situation and multiple chances to change his trajectory and do the right thing. And he just keeps acting like a selfish baby. And it feels a little bit like he's very undercooked as a character because he's basically just one thing. He's only interested in doing one thing, which is fine, but it's not really for the, for the zest and zeal that he has. So basically Hugo, this isn't a spoiler. Hugo wants to get to, uh, Salem. He wants to get there with the passion of a thousand burning suns. He is obsessed <laughs> with getting there, which I get. Like if you you grew up in the slums and you, you're like, you think you deserve better, you think you deserve better, whatever. That's totally fine. But like, that's it. That's literally all that's to that character. And it's a shame because we have somebody in Alita who is going through this journey of self-discovery and she's learning to be compassionate, but also to use her anger and to use her aggression. And she's and learning like, what her roots are and she's going through the, all these conflicting things of being in a body that's not her own, trying to get into the body that feels like her own. And then she's so hung up on this guy who's basically like, yeah, I want to go there. That's it. There's nothing to him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't think he's worthy of Alita's affections, if I'm being honest. No, he, he wasn't my favorite character. That's, that's for damn sure. He's the weakest link though. I mean, everybody else is pretty interesting. Yeah. 
I'll agree. So that would be my only negative from the movie. But you can kind of tune him out as I do most of the movie. I basically tune him out. He does pause because of his stupidity and some of his actions. He does put into place some pretty thrilling action sequences because he gets himself in so many stupid situations. So it does move a lot. He, do, he does benefit the, the excitement a little bit. He, yeah, his, his character choices do progress the plot. It's just character choices are just like, come on. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Like, put it this way. Don't ever let your daughter date a Hugo. No. <laughs> no. That's, that's the guy that every dad warns their daughter about. <laughs> exactly. And he's kind of like, and we'll get into this for spoilers, he's kind of a piece of shit. Like, some of the things he's doing are very, well, I can't say any. Anyway, yeah, he's, yeah, whatever. Hugo sucks. But we'll get into that. Okay, so stick around, guys. We will see. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Not to put you on blast, but uh, it's obvious Jason and I are going to go for a cigarette right now when we say break. And uh, Jason just held up a box of cigarettes to, 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 the, to the camera on our Discord FaceTime group <laughs> or whatever it is. And that was it. That was the call for like, let's go for a break. Here's, I'm holding up a box of cigarettes. <laughs> hey, it works. <laughs> so we're going to smoke a quick one. We're going to burn one down, and when we come back, we'll talk about Battle Angel Elite with some spoilers, and we'll go into some of the fun shit that happens in the plot. Thanks for sticking around, guys. See you in a jiffy. Bye. <laughs> That's funny. refreshed by your cigarette unfortunately yes yeah i know me too unfortunately i was very refreshed by it and i i wish i wasn't as refreshed by them as i am recently but you know yeah one of these days i'll quit <laughs> i just go through phases where i really enjoy it and then i'll go through a phase where i don't enjoy it then i'll quit but right now unfortunately i'm in one of those phases where i actually enjoy it so like fuck it they love you alita battle angel thanks for sticking around everybody and come back for round two to let's talk about the movie then let's talk about the way the plot unfolds we're going to talk about whatever variances we notice between the anime and the live action version and let's talk about some of those variances and if we think they work and if we think they don't work in regards to what's it adding and what are we losing when these additions or these subtractions in some parts are being made from the original source material Quick note to the listener, and Jason and I were talking about this on the break, we can't speak with authority over where the manga goes. So when we do discuss a difference between the live action version and the anime, I'm not sure what's being pulled from the manga and what isn't being pulled from the manga. So I don't know how actually correct to the original source material it is. So I can't speak for that. We can just speak for whether or not we think it's interesting and whether or not we think it works between the two. Yep. So. With that being said, Jason, the movie opens up. Ido finds Alita, rebuilds her using his daughter's body and his daughter's name, his deceased daughter. I think that's a really nice touch because I think it adds a, and that's why I keep thinking about 
Pinocchio, not that he's, he's not very, he's not like Geppetto, but it has that, that element to it where he's, you know, he's, he's like breathing life into something. He built a real girl. <laughs> I really like the relationship between Edo and her. And, and I really like how he is, but it, what's interesting is it's a little different than it is in the live, uh, the animated version. His attitude. Yes. Yeah. He feels more fatherly, more, it feels more loving in the live action version. More protective. He's more protective of her. Protect. He's way more protective of her. He genuinely, I think he's aware, obviously he's a very smart man. He's aware of the fact that he's not just, this isn't his daughter, but he has that affection that a father has for a daughter mm -hmm. towards her. He's very, yeah. And he's very protective. He's concerned about what she's doing. He's trying to protect her from the life that he's living. And he's trying to protect her from what he sees as the, the, the bad things that can happen in Iron City. Well, yeah, because he knows what the bad things of Iron City are very well. Yeah. And so he knows what can happen to her and he knows that she's completely oblivious to it because she only sees the, you know, what happens during the daytime, the, all the smiling faces and stuff like that. So that's kind of her impression of, of life in Iron City. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't go out after dark. Don't leave this area. You know, so yeah, he's very protective. But in the anime, he's, I mean, he, he's still very loving um, and protective to a point, but he's also, oh, you want to do this? Yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's your life. Go do it. <laughs> I'll support you. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a scene where he openly allows Alita to, to engage in combat with um, the big hulking guy that we were talking about before. And he basically allows her to do it. It's not like, oh, I don't think you should do this. This is dangerous. He's like, okay, yeah, you guys can fight, which is, it's, it's very, so the relationship, yeah, is, is very different. Now, Edo is basically moonlighting as a bounty hunter at night when the lights go down. And he has this massive big, it's like a hammer, this huge big hammer that he carries around with him. Which is comically large considering his frame. Yes, but I mean that that's that's anime for you. Or <laughs> mangas. It's a lot like Cloud's sword in uh, Final Fantasy, in Final, where it's yes, like exactly. triple sized. Um so basically Edo is night is moonlighting, he's going out in the evening and he's he's collecting bounties. Now, you get paid for bounties, obviously, when you in this just as you do in real life. So he's it's like a second source of income for him, in a way. That's practically his only source of income. Yeah. Basically what happens is one night as he's out making his rounds, going out, he's going out. It feels very much when you watch it, he's a little out of his depth. He's a little, he's a little under, underpowered, undermanned, undergunned, a little underpowered considering the cyborgs that he's chasing down seem very ruthless and very efficient at killing people. Alita is basically tailing him. She's curious to see where he's going on, the, uh, on an evening. That's one thing that I did want to comment on and it happened both in the anime and in the live action. It was purported that there was these, uh, there's been a murder going around murdering a bunch of women. So you, you see this scene where, you know, it's, it's in the dark. There's a, a lady trying to unlock a door in the anime. It's just a girl running in the dark. Uh huh. And then, you, you know, she gets murdered and then you see him walking into the house late at night. He's kind of bloody. And so it really sets you up in a way to let you believe that it's Edo 
that is doing all these murders. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think it's it's telegraphed more in the anime because in the anime, it definitely sets it up where it's like, well, what's Ido doing at night? Why is he going out? It also happens that these women are going missing, uh, getting murdered in, in the, I guess, for their spines, correct? Different body parts, but yes. Different body parts, yeah. So um, it, de- it definitely telegraphs that more in the anime. It's definitely mainly the brain and the spinal cord, but yes. Yeah, because it's, yeah, so basically... Those are the only two parts that you can't replicate right. with this technology. They need to be intact in order for the body to be grafted onto a, a robotic cyborg body. You need those parts. If those parts aren't intact and working, then you can't. The the uh you can't just like chop a head off and put a head on. It, you need the spinal cord in order for it to be effective. And that that was uh, made more clear in the anime than it was Definitely. in the live action. Definitely. Which I like. I like I like the more sinister angle of the anime in that regard. Yes. Once it is apparent that in the live we're talking about the live action right now, once it is apparent that Ido is be basically a fumbling bounty hunter, he starts getting his ass kicked basically. Alita jumps in naturally with this ferocious energy to do the right thing, to protect the innocent to protect somebody that's getting in trouble almost like it's a a motor function like she just snaps into it she just goes for it she jumps in and it is this point where Edo light bulb goes above his head figures out what's going on and he sees her fight and it's out of nowhere this tiny like diminutive frame of a young lady is basically kicking ass like nobody's business <laughs> very much so Immediately, he's like, okay, I, I, you could tell that at this point, I think he's sus as to exactly where her origin or her origin or backstory comes from, based around the way that she's fighting, the way that she's thrown herself into battle fearlessly. We see this unfold, uh, and this is where she has the first run in with the massive hulking guy. Who I, believe, I forgot his name already. I think it's like Gershon. Uh, Grishna or something. Grishna or something like that, yeah. Grishna. And essentially, she overpowers the cyborgs out of there and overpowers them completely, which forces Gershon, I'm just going to call him Gershon, <laughs> it forces him in to sulk off in defeat. And basically, he returns back to his mentors and creators, I guess at this point, to get an upgrade because he feels like he's failed and he's not, do, he's not equipped to handle this new threat. So he basically goes back. He's like, can you please upgrade me? I need to get it upgraded. It is this point where we realize that Edo's ex-wife, Dr. Shirin, is involved in this nefarious operation of creating cyborgs and by, by biologically engineering these people. So basically, he goes back to her. She, we know that she's involved now, and she's definitely involved on the wrong side of the who's right and who's wrong, good and bad. And she helps with her experience to upgrade him once more to get him up to spec. Let's talk about Hugo and what's going on with Hugo while this is happening. He definitely plays an integral role in all this. He does. He's he's basically the catalyst for a lot of this. So Hugo, Alita is introduced to Hugo. Hugo is a friend of Dr. Ido. He's an acquaintance, does some odd jobs for him. Very, very much like a kid in the neighborhood that everybody knows. Everybody knows Hugo. Hugo, all this time, is basically running this 
this operation where him and a bunch of his ragtag bunch of scallywags are basically going around harvesting body parts from cyborgs and selling them. Now, he is actually working for Vector. Vector is this nefarious underworld crime lord who's also running the factory, which is basically supplying the goods to Zolom. Zolom. Yes, he's supplying the goods to there. That sets up this dynamic. So we have Elita and Edo, basically father and son, father and daughter, rather, <laughs> father and daughter relationship. She is becoming a burgeoning bounty hunter based around her skills. She's starting to realize that she can actually become involved in this because she's equipped physically to deal with Baal. Hugo, we find out, is now aligned on the side of Dr. Sharin and Vector because he's involved in this criminal organization that all feeds into themselves. It all feed, it feeds into itself. Sharin and Vector are also involved in the motorball sport because they obviously do uh, equipment for the cyborgs. So they do modifications, create like the ultimate uh, teammates, team members to take part in this sport. And it's all interconnected. So basically, these bodies that are going missing, the motorball sport, and Shirin's involvement is all interconnected. Basically, it's like a little ecosystem of these people feeding, feeding off each other, all within the hopes of Shirin is trying to go back to Valum, where she is from. And we find out that she is actually from there, and so is Edo. They are both originally from there, but when shit goes down with their daughter, they basically, I don't know how that plays out. How does that play out? Did they make a deal? Well, their daughter was uh, born with an illness and uh, Zalm apparently is very focused on perfection of life and stuff like that. And so because their daughter had this defect, um, the daughter was not allowed to stay in Zalm. So they had to so that's how they got kicked out. And much like Hugo, who is hell-bent on getting there, Shirin is also hell-bent on getting back. How it works, however, is there is no going to and from. You can't go back. Once you're out, you're out. And if you're not from there, there is no going there. Correct? There is no loophole in which you can actually get there. Not that I'm aware of. I'll find out in the manga. Now, Hugo is convinced that through like a coyote system, essentially, that Vector is promising him. Vector is basically promising him that if he makes enough money and does enough work for him, at some point, Vector is going to send him up to Valum, which is basically a total lie. He's not going to do that. He's just milking Hugo for everything he has. And he's basically just keeping him around as a lackey with the promise that one day he'll be able to move up. Um, Sharin, likewise, he's basically doing the same thing to Sharin. Um, Sharin is working in league with Vector in the hopes that Vector can provide her somehow with the, the means to get to get off Iron City. Neither of which will ever happen. Well, not not in the way that they want. So. Not in the way that they want. No, um, it's not really cut and dry like that. Is there's no really um, there's not a system in place for it, and it's not like running across the border. You literally can't get up there, with the exception of running up the the supply pipes that basically link up like spider's legs up to the sky. But those supply pipes are very heavily guarded. They have a defense system to stop people trying to climb up them, which comes up later on in the movie. This is basically, we're set in the scene. The only thing left to happen is ultimately Alita becomes aware 
of Hugo's involvement in this, in a, in a way of what Hugo's doing, and basically how he has blood on his hands in order for him to make a living, which sets up the rest, the second half of the movie, essentially. At this point in the movie, before we get into the very ending, was there anything noticeable that you noticed, like differences that we can talk about? Well, yeah, there was one with uh, Hugo's involvement with uh, uh, the harvesting of body parts. So in, in the, uh, the live action, he's preying on cyborgs and he's getting parts off of them and then taking those parts to Vector to then be used in, the, in Motorball. Uh, for the different gladiators, basically. While in the anime, however, it was different. He was actually going after like flesh and blood humans, and he was taking their spines. Well, he would also do try to go for cyborgs as well, but he was going after the spines and not like you know arms and legs and weapons and stuff like that. So that was one difference. I understand why they changed that for the live action because that would be particularly gruesome <laughs> watching him rip out the backbone of somebody. Yeah. But I, I really liked how it was in the, in the anime cause it made him much more of a sinister person. Like, you know, the cyborgs in the movie, you know, yeah, he's, it sucks of what he's doing. He's ripping off their arms and legs, but he leaves them alive at least. Yes. In the anime, he's, he's killing people. Oh yeah. He's straight up killing people. Yeah, it's murder, essentially. Yeah, 100%. Another thing I want to mention too, and this is where my, this is where my main confusion comes from. Not confused. I mean, it, yeah, I'm confused. Not in a bad way. At some point during Alita's ongoing battles, she has a recurring, she has three battles against Gershon, the big guy. First time she's successful. Second time where she faces him again, which is a great scene in a bounty hunter bar where it's basically like this dingy, dive bar where all of the bounty hunters gather in the basically it's like a social club for bounty hunters essentially she ends up having another battle against this big guy now he's already went back and he's been upgraded so dr shirin's helped upgrade him and now he has this massive mechanical arm that breaks off into like tentacles almost like, like razor tentacles blades. yeah chain blades it's very cool Upon that second battle, Alita is feeling herself a little bit. She's very confident. She's been untested so far. She meets her match. She gets basically shredded by the arms of the, the, the tentacle arms and uh, essentially destroyed. Luckily enough, her spinal cord's still intact and Edo rescues her and takes her back. Before this happens, we have a scene in which Alita, who's very much in the early stages of her relationship and her romance with Hugo, they go outside of town and they basically come across a spaceship. Now, a spaceship that is, so as I mentioned earlier on in the first half of the show, 300 years before the events that are taking place right now in Iron City, there was a galactic war, essentially a war. The spaceship that she finds is belonging to a race of humans or humanoids. Humans humans that were like essentially like a warrior class. So imagine the Spartans from 300, like straight up, highly trained, highly effective warriors with super advanced technology. After the, the, the war that happened 300 years ago, that technology has been deemed to be lost to the world. Yeah. It's, it's uh, highly advanced, way more advanced than the technology that they currently have. 
but completely lost to the world. Whilst Hugo and Alita are hanging out, she discovers that this spaceship and she feels this natural urge to go inside. When she goes inside, she finds a body, like a full body suit. She basically connects to that. She knows that this, she has this un, like unmistakable urge that this, she's connected somehow to this ship, that she's been there before. That So she's starting to piece together things from her past and where she came from. So she returns the body and she takes the body back to, to Dr. Ido and she's like, hey, I think this is my body. I think this is where I'm from. And he explains, he's like, yeah, this is probably what you were. I, I could tell by the way that you fight and by the way that, you know, like this is who you are. But he's hesitant to reconnect her with the body because he's worried that I think, A, I think he's holding on to the, to the father-daughter relationship, but I think he's worried that he's going to lose her when she gets this body. You know what I mean? Well, I, yeah, I think part of his fear was that if he reunites her with that body, that she might kind of lose it and, and go kind of berserk. Because they were actually called berserkers. Like yes. she was from, from a clan of these people called, and they, that's what they named the berserkers because they were like super effic- uh, efficient, highly skilled killing machines, essentially. After her defeat against uh, Gershon, she gets totally shredded. He's kind of left with no choice, Edo. He has to, he doesn't have a body anymore. He can't put, put her back in the body that he had her in that is he built for his daughter. So he, he has no choice. So he actually reconnects her with this body. And with this, she becomes way more powerful, like way more powerful than she was before. Now she's fully capable of not only with her warrior spirit, she also has the body to match. My question to you is, and the reason I'm bringing this up, is we do not see this in the anime. There is no, no. It, they, they don't bring up the spaceship. They don't bring up the war. They don't bring up her getting swapping to a second body. In the anime, where she has a second battle with Gershon, she basically destroys him there and then. She just kicks his ass with the body that Edo gave her. In the movie, it posits that she needed to reconnect with this berserker body before she'd become fully formed as a leader battle angel. Right. So, yeah, I'm assuming that that comes up in later episodes of the manga. Um, but I, I will say that I, I have read far enough into the manga. To, to see like her first initial fight. Um, and in the manga, um, Dr. Ito e- immediately recognizes what she is because her, her, her particular fighting style is a fighting style called a uh, Panzer Kunst, uh, which is specifically a fighting style used by the arm berserkers. Arm was uh, stood for like the United Republic of Mars. And uh, so in, in the, in the manga, he immediately says, whoa, that's Panzer Kunst. And so he immediately knows what she is. I haven't gotten much past that, but uh, in, the, in the anime, it, it never comes up. It's never really mentioned, I don't think. But then in the, in the movie, he does acknowledge that it's Panzer Kunst whenever she uh, brings the body to him, explains to her what she is. Yeah, and I love that. I love, I love it. And I think it just opens up even more possibilities, you know, because not only are we, do we have the possibilities of further adventures in Iron City. We have the fact that she could be going up to Valum, and then we also have, you know, like the backstory there. And I think all of it is very rich in terms of like possibilities for future material. Very much so, yeah. So with that being said, once she's reunited in her new body and she is fully formed, 
um, her relationship with Hugo continues. Now, she's fully convinced that she's in love with Hugo, which is huge red flag because he's a total asshole. Basically, she's become almost like puppy love to the point where she's like very much so very codependent and she's very, um, very hell bent on helping Hugo get what Hugo wants. Hugo wants to go up. So she wants to get him there. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, I can pick up more bounties. I can make a ton of money doing these bounties. I can compete in motorball and I can make money playing in motorball, which sets up when she does actually enter the league and she does make her debut appearance. So basically she's going out of her way in such a ridiculous manner just to just to please him and just just to give him what he wants. Ultimately, all of this time, he's not really giving her anything back. He's no. just like, okay, cool. Yeah. You know I mean? Like you can go out and put yourself in harm's way and uh, murder all of these super dangerous criminals. And yeah, I'll take the money and yeah, I'll go up. It's so, so weird. It, it reminds me of like, like, um, I don't know, like a middle school relationship or something like that. <laughs> Like very emotionally stunted. Yes. Yeah. You, you, you can tell in the movie and the anime as it's going that it's definitely just puppy love, basically. Like it doesn't feel like a real relationship and it almost kind of feels like Hugo is just using her the whole time. So that's, yeah, kind of a dick. <laughs> Total dick move. Ultimately, what ends up happening is... Alita enrolls herself in motorball and she goes up and Ido is actually pretty supportive considering how dangerous it's going to be. And Ido helps make her a pair of like roller boots, which he attaches to her feet just to, you know, and he actually goes up with her and he's standing in the crowd. He's like, I'm going to support you if this is what you want to do. Cause he knows how much of a badass she is. So he goes up with it. And then we have this thrilling, absolutely thrilling segment where she is taking part in the sport we get to see how the sport kind of works in terms of like the logistics of the game to an extent to an extent yeah it doesn't go to, i mean it's we're not going like full quidditch but no. we do get enough we get enough of a bearing without considering this is only like a 10 minute section of the movie we get enough to understand the stakes of the game and also the basics of the rudimentary basics of how the game's played and it's great i think he does such a good job and it's telegraphed really well and it's really easy to follow. And it's, I, I genuinely think it's thrilling. It is. I'm just glad they didn't focus on it too much. Yes. Um, yeah. Because that was one of my biggest complaints about uh, the Phantom Menace for Star Wars. Oh, yeah. It's like half the movie is the pod race. <laughs> That's actually a good comparison, too, because it's like, yeah, you're introduced to a new sport. You know what I mean? But that movie gets swallowed by the pod race, essentially. To almost feels like it does, um, but he keeps it brief and just enough so we can kind of follow what's going on. We kind of understand what the rules are and we can have a good time with it. Meanwhile, Hugo is being tracked by a cyborg and being hunted by a cyborg. Now, this fella is the guy that I mentioned early on. He's the British actor who plays, let's see if I can get his name. Zafan. Zafan? Zafan. Like Japan with a Z. Okay. So Zafan is basically. This pretty boy cyborg robot who has a really badass sword. Now, the sword that he has is actually an urn sword, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. It's, um, it was one of the, the weapons that the berserkers would use. And the beauty about this sword is it is 
borderline indestructible. It's kind of like having a vibranium sword if you were in Marvel, I guess. It's top of the line, super high tech. However, he's incapable of using it correctly because he isn't, he doesn't have the technology. He's not, yeah, he's not compatible. Yeah, he's not compatible. He wasn't meant to use the sword. He is on the tail of Hugo. Now he's trying to collect a bounty on Hugo because a bounty gets put out on Hugo based around Hugo's nefarious deeds that he's been taking part in. Hugo calls Alita in a state of panic and he's like, I think I'm going to get killed. I'm going to get murdered. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Once again, and this is mid-race, she's in the middle of competing in motorball to win money for his ass. And he calls <laughs> her in the middle of the race and he's like, yeah, I fucked up. Like, you know, I'm going to get killed. Freaking out. What should I do? And once again, she drops everything to go and help him. So she basically escapes from the motorball rink while she's up, she's going to win. She gets, there's a hot pursuit because as it turns out, the game's rigged. Everybody there was essentially out to kill her, not to compete in the game. Everybody's out to kill her. And this is all to do with Vector's involvement because Vector is basically. He's rigging the games. Yeah. He's rigging the games. Yeah. She drops everything. She heads back to try and rescue him. She does rescue him. When does Hugo lose his body? So she catches back up with him when Zapan tracks him down. And then basically since he had a, a bounty on his head at this point with her being a bounty hunter or a, what do they call them? Uh, hunter warrior. Hunter warrior. Yeah. With, with her being a hunter warrior, he was like, well, I'm going to kill him. And she's like, he's mine. And that's when he's like, well, let me help you out. And he stabs him, uh, stabs Hugo. And so at this point, Hugo was dying. And so that's when they take him into the church. And, uh, and it was actually Dr. Shirin that cut his, his body off. Yeah. So this is, a, this is the turn for Dr. Shirin. This is where we see some humanity in her. And it, it also happens in the anime too. Once Safan has uh, essentially murdered or tried to murder Hugo, Dr. Shirin cunningly helps save him because she obviously feels something for this Alita. She obviously, she was a mother at one point. She definitely understands like their love affair. She understands how much Hugo means to her, uh, to Alita. So she helps Alita by basically keeping the spinal cord and the brain and Hugo's head alive so she can take him back to Edo, who can hopefully help get him in a spare body and keep him alive because she's desperate not to lose the love of her life. Edo, because he's a good dad, because he loves his daughter, Despite the fact that this fucking Hugo keeps causing problems, getting his daughter into shit, he's like, okay, you know what it is? I'll help you out. So he basically hooks Hugo up with another suit, another body. So now Hugo has become part cyborg. The one thing that he was hunting, Hugo has become. But that's not enough for our Hugo. He won't let it lie. He's basically got a support network. Now, the shit's hit the fan. There's still a bounty out on Hugo. He's still in danger, but if he laid low long enough and he just listened to Ido and Alita, they could protect him long enough to figure out the situation. But he doesn't do that. What he decides to do, like a madman, is just to make a run for Valum. So basically, he heads to the nearest supply pipe that's feeding up and starts charging up. Willy-nilly, he's just like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. I don't know what his plan is once he gets there. Because he's got no money. You know what I mean? He's a technically a legal immigrant once he gets up there. But he's he's lost his full mind at this point. I think that that's basically what it is. He he just 
had a, a little bit of a psychotic break. <laughs> yeah, it is like a psychotic break. Alita um, follows him in hot pursuit, just like she does in the anime. She chases him up the pole, up the supply tube, confronts him, and she's like, hey, what are you doing? Like, like, calm down. You can be safe down here. We can look after you. He's like, it's gone too far. I've, I've hurt too many people. Like, this is all I've got left. I've got to do it. Don't try and stop me. There is a security system in place on these tubes, which is like a spinning wheel. It's like a, almost like a combine harvester. If you imagine it in like a spinning, like a thresher that spins around the, 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 the circumference of the supply tube and heads up and down. And it's basically just knock everybody off who's on there. This starts heading down. Hugo thinks he can jump it. He can't jump it though. So what happens is he gets shredded. <laughs> Once again, he gets shredded in his second body. Alita tries to save him. She grabs him, holds on to him, ultimately lets him go. He's dead. So basically that's Hugo out of the picture altogether. Alita's furious and she knows exactly what happened. She knows that Vector got to him. She knows that he was being played as a puppet. He's being controlled by Vector. So she goes to confront Vector. When she gets to Vector, this is where the story takes a twist. It's been hinted at earlier on, but it really takes a twist here. So once confronting Vector, we become aware of the fact, well, we were already made aware of the fact, but it, it doubles down on the fact that Vector isn't operating alone. He's operating under the control and influence from somebody else. Now, this is where the twist comes in and we get to see who it is. It is actually... Nova. Nova, yes. Destiny Nova is this super... Can you explain exactly what who he is for me, Jason? And our listeners? kind of a mystery like you don't know exactly what he does but essentially he's he's kind of rug running like a body part smuggling operation for uh for Zalem. i guess it's to you know maybe enable the the residents of Zalem to be able to swap out their eyes or get a new intestinal system if there's is kind of wearing down or something like that so they use like they farm body parts off of uh, people from below for that. So he, he's kind of like, that's, that's his thing. But it, it doesn't really, you don't really find out what his role in Zalem is other than that. Whether he's a criminal mastermind, whether he's, you know, the high chancellor or whatnot, you, you, we don't know. Suffice to say that we know that he is the, the, the ultimate puppet master, or at least the puppet master above Vector. So Alita kills Vector, knowing that he's just a pawn in the game, and ultimately ultimately to make a stance against Destiny Nova. So that's basically her saying, I know what you're up to. I know that this is no good. I'm getting rid of Vector. You fucked up. Killed. Ultimately, you killed Hugo. So basically, it's on like Donkey Kong right now. She's lost the love of her life. And that's pretty much how the movie wraps up, which is in itself a great setup for a follow-up movie. A great setup. Yes, it is. And uh, honestly, I, I really think that whether or not we're going to get a sequel to this depends on how well Avatar 2 does. Well, speaking of that, I did a little bit of research uh, <laughs> as we were talking. So this is from from a website called giantfreakingrobot.com. I'm not familiar with this. I don't know. What a name. I know, right? It sounds like a... <laughs> God, I don't know. Anyway, how it works is Fox made... It was 20th Century Fox 
which is the company that made this Battle Angel Alita. It's also a company that James Cameron was intrinsically linked to and did a lot of work for previous to this. The movie cost $200 million to make, which is a not an insignificant amount of money. That puts it like, is a very expensive movie. I mean, most Marvel movies cost like $250. So we're talking like, it's this was a, a really expensive movie. The movie made double. But as we all know, in today's age of massive, massive blockbusters, the movie needs to make more than double to really break even. It needs to make like triple or quadruple. So a movie that costs $200 million that makes $400 million is not necessarily deemed as a success. A movie that costs $200 million and makes $800 million is deemed as a success. So unfortunately, whilst the movie probably broke even, it didn't make a ton of money. What happened since then, as we're all aware, is that Disney bought out 20th Century Fox. So Disney now technically owns the Alita movie series, which makes it incredibly difficult because Disney is very careful about what it greenlights and what it doesn't greenlight. Uh, based around money because it's ultimately money. How much money is it going to make? Because the first movie wasn't a, a massive success financially, it was a big success critically, and I think it has a a, a cult following. Very much so. Jason and I would be part of that cult following. <laughs> Rodriguez is ready to go. Norton's ready to go. He's totally fine with making it. He wants to make it. So I guess it all the ball's in Disney's court right now. Yeah, because Cameron's on board to do it as well. So all the main players involved, they all want to do another one, including the actress that played Alita. She's she's really eager to to reprise that role. So yeah, it it's it's all down to Disney. But I think that if Avatar 2 does really well, then that will just kind of help, you know, Cameron's street cred, I guess you could say. I think I think he'll he'll have a bit more I mean, not like he doesn't already, it's James Cameron. Right. But I, I think he'll have a bit more sway at Disney because this is the first movie he's done for Disney. So he'll have a bit more sway, a bit more power. And hopefully he can push it and they'll be like, Yeah, it's worth the money. Let's just knock it out and do it. You know what I mean? I'm interested to see what Avatar does though. If I was a betting man, I don't think Avatar beats Top Gun this year in terms of box office. I would say Avatar definitely doesn't do what Avatar 1 did, but I would say probably, I don't know, I would say Avatar comes in at probably like the second biggest movie of the year at the box office. Well, I'm hoping for a number one. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm only saying that because I was looking, I Jason, you all, we'll talk about Avatar for a bit. We all know that like this is your Super Bowl. You're super excited for yes, it. Yes, indeed. But I haven't bought my tickets yet. And I was like, whatever, I'll just buy them. I can still easily get tickets on opening day for Avatar easily. Pretty much at all of the showings that I've been looking at. That's not a good sign. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Cross our fingers. I mean, I think it's going to do okay. I just, I was really shocked because today I was going through different, different cinemas, different screens. And granted, I can't sit in the middle, which is where I'd want to sit for most of the screenings this weekend. But I can easily get tickets. For pretty much all of the showing, which is alarm bells are ringing for me slightly. True, but then you also got to keep in mind though that this was already projected to be one of the biggest movies, and so it it's got a lot more, a lot more showings. Oh, I mean, it does have a lot more showings, but so do Marvel movies. So Marvel movies just when when they release like Doctor Strange or the Eternals or whatever the big Marvel uh, Thor four whatever it was. 
the the majority of the screens go to the Marvel movies, just as they are. And and technically, this is this is Marvel. It's Disney now, so it's all under the same umbrella anyway. So um, yes, it's got the majority of the screenings. But even when I've went to book tickets for like, I'm trying to think of the last big one where it was like really difficult to get a, a, a seat. Some of the Marvel movie openings, I've tried to get opening weekend tickets and I've found it very, very hard to get tickets. Like the primarily like almost entirely sold out. I'm not seeing that with Avatar 2. Well, we'll have to see. I, I'm I'm thinking that people will, will watch it and then word of mouth will spread and then more people will... will... It, I think it'll be more of a slow burner rather than everybody goes and watches it. And then the- I think so too. And, and the early reviews are really great for it. So that's going to go in its favor. Secondly, we're heading into Christmas weekend, like not this week, but next week. And a lot of people go and see movies on Christmas. Uh-huh. So it could have a really strong second week yep. because it's going to open big this week. It's going to open big regardless how big it does. I don't know. But next week it's going to run uncontested and a lot of people go the theaters Christmas weekend. So I've, I'm sure it's going to have a really big second week too. And probably for the rest of the year, I don't think anything else big for the rest of the year is coming out. So we've got Avatar could run right now from opening tomorrow all the way through to the beginning of January and it'll just dominate because there's nothing else competing against it. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Yeah, I think it'll do well. The other uh, argument that I have against, you know, Avatar versus Marvel is Marvel's based off of you know, decades upon decades of comic books. Pre-existing material, yeah, so that people are familiar, well, for the most part, are familiar with. Yeah, so it, it's got fans that have been fans of Marvel since, you know, the fucking 60s shit. That, that definitely counts towards it. And I also want to make it known, or like, I want to say this on the podcast too, like, I don't give a fuck about how much money a movie makes. I only give a shit about how much it makes if it means if it's something I enjoy that it gets to keep being made. You know what I mean? Yeah. I become invested when I'm like, I want to see a sequel to Battle Angel Leader. I wanted to see a sequel to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I wanted them to do well because I wanted to see a sequel. Right. You know, like ultimately, uh, I don't care how many millions of dollars they make. And Battle Angel, uh, or Leader Battle Angel, wasn't necessarily intended to be a standalone. It was. It's intended to be a trilogy, actually. Uh, the second movie is going to be uh, Alita Fallen Angel, and then the third one is Alita Avenging Angel. I really hope they get to make them. I uh-huh. really do. Yeah, me too. Jason and I will be there day one for both of those when they come out. Okay, so I mean, that kind of wraps it up. Watch the movie. Go watch it yourself. It's worth the watch. Go buy the damn thing. Support James Cameron in this. <laughs> and all of the talented people that worked on it all the passion you could tell it's a labor of love this movie it yes. feels like they give a fuck about it it feels like they care about it and they like it feels crafted yeah it, it's it's not like a summer movie money grabber yeah it definitely doesn't feel like that it feels like it has reverence for its source material which shines through the fact that they're confident enough to just whole whole sections and whole scenes from it. They they give a shit about it. They give a shit about the story. The actors give a shit about the performances. Everything is like it's it's highly worth your time. I definitely definitely recommend it. And right now you can watch it. It's streaming on Hulu, which is where I watched it. Um so if you have a Hulu subscription, you can stream it through that. Or just rent it or buy it. It's you can probably get a decent deal on it digitally or like pick up a Blu-ray. You know, you probably get a reasonable price at this point. Yes, indeed. Definitely worth the watch. 
So we're heading off into the sunset, Jason. Before we head off, uh, anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, yeah, New Orleans. Go to New Orleans. Eat some good food. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good recommendation. Yeah, get yourself to New Orleans. Did you when you were there? Did you see what one of the reasons I want to go? And it's pretty macabre, I know, but I I do want to see one of those funeral processions. Gotcha. Yeah. No. Um. I didn't. I didn't see anything like that. Um. I didn't. You know, look at the at the cemetery. I didn't like go into the cemeteries. I did that last time I was there. It's really cool to go through and check out all the uh, all the the gothic architecture and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, one of my biggest things from the trip was, uh, I went to preservation hall, which is a, uh, a very famous, uh, jazz place, uh, home of the preservation hall jazz band. And I got to sit front row, front and center on that thing. And it was awesome. Yeah. I love that. And I suppose you went off season too, because peak season in New Orleans is like around Mardi Gras, obviously. Yeah, that's um, when I would avoid that place. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I would too. It looks bloody awful around that period of time. Yeah, it, I mean, the there. city's great, but it's just all the assholes that go there. You'd be like, no, I don't want to yeah, go there. Everybody's drunk and bumping into you, throwing up on your shoes. Yeah, don't go there. Yeah, no, screw that. Well, my recommendation is related to Jason's trip to uh, New Orleans. I would like to recommend the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is a Clint Eastwood movie starring John Cusack and Kevin Spacey. Yes, that Kevin Spacey. And also a young Jude Law. Um, it's a murder mystery thriller based in New Orleans around uh, featuring a, a bunch of socialites who are up to no good. It is fantastic. It's based on a very famous novel, which I haven't read. But the movie is really, really good. Excellent performances. It's a little old now, but still really, really good. Highly, highly recommend Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And especially if you just want to go on like a tourist vacation while you're watching it, because the scenery is beautiful, the location's beautiful, all the old buildings. It's very, it's steeped in everything that is New Orleans. So it's really, really cool. So big recommend for midnight in the garden of good and evil and that wraps us for tonight thanks jason i really appreciate you coming on thanks great to be here I sat down